All right, well, what Becky said, I am Aaron, married to her, so I'm one of the pastors here at River City. So thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, my Brandon, who he's the normal preacher, regular preacher here, so I'm the glorified fill-in today. So lucky you here on Father's Day. So, uh, so yeah, my wife is Becky. We have three daughters, uh, one in high school, one in middle school, one in elementary school. So there's a lot of talking in our house. That's the way we like it. Um, so if this is your first time here this morning, uh, we, we are in the middle of a preaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is in the book in the New Testament. So about 2,000 years ago, 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a local church that he planted five years prior in the Roman city of Corinth. And as we've seen throughout this sermon series, Paul has been addressing uh, to, to this local church just like one issue after another and addressing these issues like one after another in this local church. And in doing so, we've clearly seen that we are more like this church than unlike this church. Not in the essence of this church's, pro- church's problems in Corinth, but we're also in, like them in terms of the universal solution that we all need, which is the gospel. Because applying the gospel to our thinking and feeling and relating and just like, um, is just like the universal solution that we all need. So there's such thing as, cult- as cultural differences, but the gospel is a transcultural solution and it centers on the person and the work of Jesus. So Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we were supposed to die. And through repentant faith in Jesus, we are permanently made right with God and permanently adopted into his family. So imagine that God is a judge and he just uh, throws down his gavel and says, like, not gu- you are not guilty through faith in Christ. And then God takes off his, like, judiciary robe and just, like, comes down and he hands adoption papers to the the party was, that was just accused right there, that was just acquitted. So he doesn't just legally make us right with him, like he adopts us into his family. So when I say gospel, like that is the good news right there. So the next passage in 1 Corinthians that we're going to be preaching through is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. And the theme is something that's really been uh, life-changing for me over the last decade, and it's about idolatry and how the gospel is the way out. Idolatry and how the gospel is the way out. So we're going to first pray together, and then I'll read the passage. I'll unpack some of the themes in it. And then we'll just collectively respond to God through remembering the gospel through taking communion together. So let's pray. So God, um, like Becky was talking to you just now, like we're really thankful for you. We pray that for your spirit to really um, unify us, to really bring clarity to um, our heart. And that is where the locus of your attention just like um, is pointed to, where you want the gospel to really be formed and to come to bear on, so we really need you for that. Um, we can't do that through just kind of like excellent rhetorical preaching. We can't do that like through like our own willpower. We need your spirit to just really apply the gospel well to us. So yeah, so we just humbly ask you for that, and we love you. Amen. All right, so the passage will be up on the screen. So chapter 10, verse 1. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the, the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and, some, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give, give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the blood that we, excuse me, the bread that we break in a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? There is a lot going on in this passage, <laughs> but I'm going to sum it up here um, just so we can clearly see the emphasis that Paul has in this passage. So in this passage, we see two histories on display. We see Israelite history, and we see Corinthian history. And Paul very intentionally highlights that the Corinthians have a lot in common with their spiritual ancestors, the Israelites. They've both been rescued by God. God rescued the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt, and he, he's rescued the Corinthians from the slavery of sin and death. They've both been sustained by God. God sustained the Israelites by providing literal and spiritual food and drink when they were wandering around in the desert after leaving, the, leaving Egypt in the Old Testament. And God has sustained the, the Corinthians by providing spiritual food and drink through the gospel, which is symbolized in communion. They've both, both people groups have been rescued and sustained by God. But there's one major commonality between the Israelites and the Corinthians that Paul emphasizes. And that is that even though both the Israelites and the Corinthians had been rescued by God and sustained by God, their hearts 
were drawn to worshiping other gods. And the language that Paul uses to, just, to describe when their hearts are drawn to worshiping other gods is idolatry. That's what that word just means there. So idolatry is something that's universally operational in literally everyone. It's something that we all have in common. Verse 13, verse 13 it's like, like no temptation has like seized you except what is common to all mankind. Idolatry is a common, universal, operational thing in all of our hearts. It's something that we all have in common. That being said, we need to notice that in this passage, Paul focuses his attention on what idolatry looks like among the people of God. Not people everywhere, like at any place, but he focuses on what idolatry looks like among the people of God, both for the Israelites and for those in the local church. Like people who have been rescued and sustained by God are drawn on a heart level to worshiping idols. If you have put your repentant faith in Jesus, then that means that you have been rescued and sustained by God. But Paul says that for all of us, there's something enticing about worshiping idols on a heart level. Like Paul seems to be making the claim that for the people of God, idolatry isn't so much about rejecting God. Rather, it's about wanting to worship God plus other gods. Because idolatry, in its most basic form, is always about the plus. Because God plus anything equals idolatry. If you're an engineer, that is a great equation right there. For the Israelites in verse 7, it says, they sat down to eat and drink, which is alluding to God sustaining them spiritually and literally through the provision of manna and quail. And like they whacked a rock and then there's water that came out and that God provided all of those things when they're wandering around helplessly in the desert. But to read the rest of verse 7 right there in our passage, it says the people sat down to eat and drink. We're worshiping God. We're sustained by him. This is great dot, 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 and they got up to indulge in revelry, which is alluding to when the Israelites literally made a calf made of pure gold, and that was an idol because their hearts were just wanting to worship like things. They want to worship not just God, but God plus other things. The rescued and sustained people of God had their hearts drawn to worshiping idols. And Paul parallels that to the, to the Corinthians, starting in verse, verse 16. He says when they, when they eat and drink communion, which symbolizes their participation with Christ in the gospel, it symbolizes their faith in, and trust in Christ. But Paul goes on to say that even though they participate with Christ in the gospel, the hearts of the Corinthians were drawn to participating in the worship of idols at the neighborhood pagan temples, which, long story short, like I'll save you a bunch of time on like background research, there's literally no parallel to like those pagan temples in, like, in the city of Dubuque. There just isn't. Like I'll just save you the time with that. So it would be the equivalence of the Corinthians coming into worship, a worship service here and like worshiping Jesus and the gospel and just like, man, just, and then after the worship service, they walk all over to lot one over here where there is literally a pagan priest right there and they are sacrificing a literal animal like in lot one. And then like, then 
um, they all worship to this demon, and this demon is being like sacrificed to, and everybody's worshiping the demon. And then the pagan priest is like throws the animal sacrifice into the fryer and just fries it up, and then like we're gonna eat it now. Okay, lunch is served. It's like there's no, they don't do that at lot one. And like Paul is in this passage is saying, you what you did? Oh oh my gosh. <laughs> Moving up the social ladder was really important in the Corinthian culture. So the hearts of the Corinthian believers were like, yeah, it's not bad to go to this demonic worship service, and this is great, and just throw that thing in the fryer and eat this thing up, and this will be great for our social standing. I can worship God plus this demon, and it's no big deal. And that's crazy. But C.S. Lewis had this phrase called chronological snobbery. And that was his fancy, uh, cheeky British way of saying that it's easy to look at people in the distant past and be like, those primitive, unsophisticated people who worshipped idols. Certainly we as the people of God today would never do something like that because we have come to a point of sophistication and understanding that we wouldn't do something like that chronological snobbery. We are more like them than unlike them. Tim Keller says the following. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental to God, to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Idolatry isn't necessarily about wanting bad things, but it's also about turning good things into ultimate things. This means anything can become an idol including good things such as a career, family, achievement, your independence, a political cause, material possessions, people in dependence on you, power and influence, friendship, physical attractiveness, romance, human approval, financial security, your place in a particular social circle. The most basic question that, which God poses to each human heart is, has someone or something besides Jesus taken hold of your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. And like Keller says, the issue is ultimately the heart. That's why Paul says in verse 6 in the passage here today in 1 Corinthians 10, that idolatry is about setting our hearts on evil things. That manifests itself in like a lot of stuff and behaviors sometimes, obviously, but like it starts in the heart. That's where idolatry is operational. So let me quick read verses 13 and 14 again. It says, no, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, because idolatry is common to universally common. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that is not like when Paul says that, that's not a, wow, you are so great, you can bear this. No, no, like the emphasis is on God. Like God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. God will always provide a way out so that you can flee from idolatry. God will always provide a way out so you can flee from idolatry. And that is a promise from God. Fleeing and taking... So I want you to hear this because if you miss this, like you just miss the whole sermon, okay? 
Don't leave right after I say this. All right. So <laughs> fleeing and taking the way out, first and foremost, is about believing the gospel and applying the gospel to our thinking, feeling, and relating. Fleeing and taking the way out is first and foremost about believing the gospel and applying the gospel to our thinking and feeling and relating. And with that in mind, for the next few minutes, I'm just going to give a bunch of practical examples of what worshiping idols can look like for us um, and what it looks like to flee and take the way out by believing the gospel and applying it to our thinking and feeling and relating. And I'm going to do that by talking about four common idols, uh, which are power, uh, control, comfort, and approval. So you're given a little chart on the way way in from Steph. Hey, that's our Father's Day handout giveaway. Great job, guys. (laughs) Laminate that thing, put that on your fridge, and be blessed. So... (laughs) So, you were, um, so if you didn't get one, you can raise your hand. Steph will come over and give you one. So, um, so I'm just going to briefly explain the column headings, and then I'm going to um, just go in a little more in depth about what each idol over there. So, so life, only has me- life has meaning, and I only have worth if. Now, you belong to Jesus, but when push comes to shove, this is where you're tempted to find your meaning and identity and worth. This is what keeps your world in orbit. And when, and when you don't have what, what's in this column, your inner world just comes unglued and your world just flies out of orbit. And to be clear, the things in this column aren't necessarily bad things. They're just desires that, it, that are inordinate. And this is biblical counseling 101. Identify the inordinate desires in your heart and ask yourself, what's motivating those desires? So this is like what Paul, like Paul says in verse 6. This is what we're tempted to set our hearts on. Column number two, your greatest nightmare. This is what you'll do anything to avoid. This is your personal hell. This is like, man, I am going to avoid this at whatever it takes. It's column number three, people around me often feel. It's really self-explanatory. Column four, this is your predominant problem of emotion. Now, the Bible does not argue for an emotionless life. It does not. Like, emotions are part of being human. And we see in Scripture that God himself has emotions. But not all emotions have a godly root. And this is also biblical counseling 101 because we need to see that some of these emotions, we need to treat them like a check engine light on, your car, on the dashboard of your car. So if you're driving and you see the check engine light, it's like, wow, there's, there's something going on under the hood. I should just see what's going on. Okay. So when we, sometimes when we have these kinds of emotions, it's like, it's like that's kind of like a check engine light. There's what's going on in my heart. It's like this is just biblical counseling 101. So, so I'm going to be talking about each of these four idols and um, how we're tempted to worship them on a heart level. And I'm going to talk about what it me- look, looks like to flee and take the way out with each of these. And like I said, like fleeing and taking the way out is first and foremost about believing the gospel and applying it to your thinking and feeling and relating. So let's first talk about power. So the idol of power, that's about your inner world being kept in orbit by success and winning and influence and respect. Those things are just consuming desires in your heart. And when there's someone else in the room that has more success or more influence or more respect than you, there's just something inside you that feels tweaked and out of place and uncomfortable and just kind of burns. 
boldly or subtly displaying your knowledge or your track record so that others can marvel at your glory is just pretty critical to you feeling at ease in life. Even in Christian circles, power can sneakily and benevolently show up as more or less telling someone, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm going to tell you exactly how to live your life because I know what's best for you. Because deep down, you are convinced that you know what's best for everyone. And not to be rude when I say this, but if someone has a less sophisticated personality, power often comes out as being domineering or brash. Um, if someone has a more sophisticated personality, it often comes out, power often gets manifested as just kind of being a little pushy or kind of smothering with opinions or just being really opinionated or you're just known as someone who gives a lot of unasked for advice. <laughs> it's like when people are following your advice and influence and ideas, it feels so good. The puzzle pieces of your heart are just put together. But when people don't follow your advice, your influence, or your ideas, you just burn on the inside. And people around you often feel used because people who often have um, a power idol unknowingly tend to think about others as a means or a vehicle to achieving certain goals or ideas. Like even if those goals and um, even if those goals or objectives that you have are good and godly, like people can feel used on your, on your way towards those. That's why often when I hear people just casually talk about others and somehow there's just like this tone of like seeing people as useful or helpful and like measuring their like, like man, they're, are these people useful? Are they helpful? I'm like, hmm. You know, it's just like when I hear people talk like that, that's usually code for I think you have a power idol and you don't realize it. But the good news is that the gospel is the way out of that. Like, my friends who struggle with a source idol of power and influence have said that it's helpful to, for them to ask God to empower them to believe that life doesn't necessarily work best when they're the ones who have the final say. And life doesn't necessarily work best when their decisions and their input is heeded most. Because the gospel says quite the opposite. The gospel says that life works best when God is the one who has the influence in someone's life, not us. Because so in that way, believing the gospel frees us from using people as a means to an end. Believing the gospel frees us from micromanaging people's lives and decisions. And believing the gospel frees us from having a psychotic persistence towards others that this is the way that need, it needs to get done. And believing the gospel frees us from being driven nuts when our advice is not immediately received or accepted by our spouse or our coworkers or our kids. Believing the gospel frees us to love others instead of using them as a means to, for an identity. So let's talk about control. So the idol of control, that's about organizing your life in such a way that, so that you can have certainty about everything. That way, your inner world is just kept in orbit because life is predictable and completely under control. See, power is about controlling others um, and um, having them follow your influence. 
control is about controlling your own little world and just like creating certainty in your world. It's like, yeah, everything needs to be done in a certain way, in a certain timing, in a certain like manner, or else something bad might happen. Risk management is your middle name. And one of the unintended consequences for living life like that is that people closest to you can often feel condemned, be condemned because nobody can do it right. And the price that you're often willing to pay is you being exhausted from doing everything yourself because you believe that if you do it yourself, you may get overwhelmed, but at least you can trust that it'll get done the right way, and then, then you don't need to deal with your personal hell of uncertainty. That's why, tragically, the more that someone struggles with the idol of control, the more isolated and overwhelmed that person can typically feel. This is the kind of stuff that the women's book study that Becky was talking about, um, afraid of all the things that they've really been talking about. Um, but, and if you're a woman, you should consider going to the book study. It's, re it's really fruitful and great, and it's a safe place for that, um, to have those conversations. But you need to know that control is not a gender-specific idol. Okay, I personally know this, okay? Um, like, you know, it's like, it's easy for me to like think like, oh, I don't have a control idol. I just like things being organized, like, eh. Do like, it's like, I mean, it's like being organized is good, but there's a difference between being organized and having this white knuckle grip on life so that you can, all the details on life so that I don't have to deal with uncertainty. But the good news of the, of the gospel is that like, man, the gospel is the way out of this. Becky is really open about the fact that she needs to ask God to help her to believe Colossians 1 that he's the one who holds all things together. He's the one that sustains all things, not her. And believing that is what empowers her to put her heart and her mind at ease so that she doesn't need to desperately strive to have absolute certainty about everything in life, including tasks or relationships or how people perceive her. When Jesus, God himself, was hanging on the cross, if any situation in human history could have seemed out of control, it was that situation. But as we later saw in his resurrection, God was absolutely in control. In the midst of the chaos on the cross and all the variables that were just out of control, like up there. Man. But if God was in control of the, on the cross, even on the cross, how much more will God bring himself and his purposes to bear on your life? Like, God sees you. And he's not just in charge, he's also good. He can be trusted. That's how believing the gospel frees us from having a white-knuckled grip on life. He can be trusted to be in control when not everything seems predictable or certain. Let's talk about comfort. So the idol of comfort is about your insatiable desire to live your best life, and feeding those desires is just what keeps your world in orbit. This is often when hobbies or special interests like disproportionately consume your heart and mind. This is often when you structure and organize your life in such a way to avoid stress and demands in the hopes of maximizing your fun and your personal enjoyment in life. And that's done often through having escapist tendencies. 
You escape through your phone, you escape with your hobbies, you escape with your shows, you escape with your friends, so that you can avoid the challenges, the stresses, and the difficulties of life. That's why people often close to you can often feel neglected because you don't prioritize like taking initiative and following through on what you said you were going to do because you've been busy avoiding and escaping. I mean, one of the common points of discipleship with, um, since it's Father's Day, we can talk about this. Um, uh, one of the common points of discipleship with uh, guys who are first-time dads uh, is that they often lament and complain that they can't do whatever they want, whenever they want anymore, because life is just kind of more structured right now, and it's not as spontaneous and as fun as it used to be, and um, that's, a, that's probably a comfort idol. It's like, and, and you've got to hear this, like, comfort has been keeping your world in orbit the whole time. You just didn't realize it. Having kids didn't create this comfort idol. Like, having kids just exposed what was already going on in your heart. And, like, you need to see this season of your life as just having a, God having a grace on you of just, like, seeing this area. And keep in mind that having a comfort idol isn't always code for laziness. That's not shorthand for laziness. Because worshiping at the feet of comfort can lead someone to obsessively playing video games and emotionally neglecting your family through being tired the next morning. Or... Uh, worshiping at the feet of comfort can also lead you to being a complete workaholic so that you can have the lux- kind of luxurious lifestyle on the weekends and with all the comforts that money can buy both now and into retirement. Like, comfort's really sneaky like that. But the good news is that the gospel is the way out with all this. So one of my friends at River City uh, told me a couple years ago about... Um, him having like their second child, that had tempted him once again to find his identity and comfort and how as a result he was gravitating towards escapist tendencies when it came to loving and serving his wife and kids. He said that God had been reminding him that when he seeks, when he seeks his comfort first and foremost from God himself, as opposed to seeking comfort first and foremost from his smartphone or his hobbies, doing that frees him to love and to serve his family. And that's important to hear. I hope that comes out loud and clear. It's like I hope that's important to hear because dinking around on your phone or playing basketball with friends on a Sunday night or buying a little something-something on Amazon or going on vacation, like, um, that doesn't mean you worship comfort necessarily. No, like, the question is, it's a hard issue. It's like, do you capital N need those comforts? Like, where's your heart at with that? Because if you receive your sense of comfort first and foremost from Jesus and what he's done for you, then all the other, all the comforts, all the other comforts in life, those are just put in place. They're put in their proper place. Comforts in life are a good thing, so don't be a legalist about it. But those things can't bear the weight of your heart and your life. Only Jesus can provide that. Let's talk about approval. So for me, um, I have always been tempted to uh, find my identity in the approval that I receive from others. Uh, For example, uh, standing before you here today, I really want you to like me and I really want you to approve of me. 
And the reason I want you to like me and approve of me is because your approval of me and your approval of my decisions and your approval of my life in general is what I'm tempted to believe, what makes me valuable, and that's what keeps me, I'm tempted to, that's what, to believe though, that's what keeps my world in orbit. And in hindsight, I have always been tempted to believe that. This is why, even though I was really athletic in middle school and high school, I barely went out for any sports because what if I screwed up on the field or people in the, and then people in the stands would like mock me and laugh at me and my teammates would get angry with me? Like I would lose their approval and like my world would fly out of orbit. This is why when I was a little kid in school, I was so nervous to just get up and sharpen my pencil. Because what if I stood up and then I would draw attention to myself and then like someone would point out something about me and like they would just make fun of me. Sounds ridiculous, I know, but this is like a hard issue, you know? It's like my world, I mean, I would just lose these, like, my, the approval of my classmates and my world would just fly out of orbit. So you just like sit there and you just don't move. It's like, this is why even when I was in early college, I couldn't even walk into a grocery store by myself because what if like, even a stranger saw me by myself and they just thought, man, I would just be a loser who was just by myself and I didn't have any friends. I would just lose the approval of even strangers and I, my world would just fly out of orbit. So you just don't ever go anywhere alone. This is why when I was a freshman in college, that's why I stayed in my dorm room for almost my entire freshman year in college because to me, making friends was about gaining the approval of others and I just wasn't good at that. And that's a really dysfunctional understanding of friendship, first of all. But I was tempted to believe that approval from friends is what made me valuable. This is why the first few years of being married to Becky, I was just intensely fearful of losing her approval. And guess what? The person that you're married to knows you best, and because of that, you're never going to have their absolute 100% approval at all times. So Becky, when Becky didn't approve of me, I would just go in these really dark places in my thoughts of like, oh my gosh, I just suck, I'm the worst, and like just really go into like these, these spiraling places in my mind. And like, cause I, and in hindsight, as I look back on that, I was tempted to believe that like Becky's approval of me, that is just what kept my world in orbit. And this is why even like today, like standing up and giving you, um, talking about this kind of stuff, it's like, I'm tempted to let approval like infiltrate my motives and how much I share. Because maybe I shouldn't uh, be vulnerable because uh, you might think I'm too screwed up to be a pastor and then I would just lose your approval. On the other hand, vulnerability from leaders is, uh, in Christian circles is often applauded. So maybe I should be a little extra vulnerable. Then people would just be like, slow clap it out. Aaron, yeah. it's like, you know, it's like, I'm a, t you know, approval is just, man, sucks. Like, like for me, I'm consistently tempted to have approval be the uninvited guest in any and every situation, you know? And I've had to learn the hard way that the gospel actually is the way out. It really is. Like I worship my way into approval and I need to worship my way out of it. Because the really practical question that I've learned to ask myself is, where do I find my ultimate source of approval? Is it from the people I'm leading? Is it from my friends? Is it from my job? Is it from my wife? Or is it from Jesus and the gospel? 
Jesus lived the perfect life that I was supposed to live, and he won all the approval from God that I ever need. And hear this, like Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 3, says that the father said to Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's approval. Jesus won my approval from God for me. And when I put my faith in Jesus, he gave me all of his approval that he earned in his life. So when the father looks at me, Aaron Morrow, he, he looks at me and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased because he has put his faith in Jesus. Not because I bat a thousand at everything. Believing that is the way out. This means that through the gospel, I have freedom to live my life from approval and not for approval. This means that I can love my wife instead of using her for, my, for approval. This means that I can hear criticism and feedback a lot better than I used to without feeling like I need to be defensive or crushed by it. I mean, I don't like criticism, but like, I mean, I don't get crushed by it like I, like it by, like I used to. This means I can focus on hearing hard and risky things because someone's consequential praise or criticism doesn't make me valuable or not valuable. Like God's approval of me through Christ is what makes me valuable, and that is unchangeable. And even after all these years, like I can see how God has grown me by like through um, just encouraging me and empowering me to take the way out and flee from that idol, you know. But like my heart is still drawn to that, so I still feel like a giraffe on ice with that kind of stuff every once in a while. But like even in the midst of my messiness, though, it's like I know that my world ultimately is not going to fly out of orbit because like I trust him, and he's the one who ultimately gives me my sense of approval. And lastly, like even though let's just remember, like even though God provides a way out always, and that is a universal promise from God, even though God provides a way out and commands us to flee from idols, let's also remember that we can never flee enough. I mean, we can't. Because the only one who perfectly took the way out all the time and perfectly fled from all the temptations towards idolatry was Jesus. Like, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. That's good news. So that's why we can read a passage like this in, in 1 Corinthians or hear a sermon about how idolatrously, idolatrously complicated we are and not be crushed or spiral into self-hatred or, like, oh, or just confusion about like where to go, what to do in life and everything. It's like you don't need to feel crushed because Jesus was crushed on your behalf already. That's why we can joyfully and thankfully put our faith in him because he's the only way out and he's, man, he's good too. That's why when we take communion together on a weekly basis, it's a symbolic way of remembering the gospel. The bread symbolizes his body. The drink symbolizes his blood. And those things were broken and shed for you. And before you take communion, I'd encourage you just to pray to him and thank him for being good and being the way out and for lovingly pursuing you in spite of your idolatry and then just come to him. 
Like receive him, surrender to him, ask him for help. Ask him to incline your heart to joyfully take the way out by believing the gospel. And like this kind of stuff, like it's not like you hear one sermon about this and then it's like, like, oh yeah, well the next week it'll be great now that I understand this stuff. Because our hearts are way more complicated than just like cognitively understanding something and then like, well, we're good. Um, like, if you understand how your heart operates with that kind of stuff, and you understand that the gospel is the way out, then um, you should be measuring your growth in years and even decades. Because like a decade from now, you can look back and just be like, God really met me and he really taught me about like how he's good and how he was the way out and how the gospel was really good news for all my power, for my comfort, my control, my approval. And he's better than all those things. So talk to him about those things. Do that authentically and don't make it a religious exercise of going through the motions. So, so if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communions just so it's not an empty ritual. But man, if you, if you see the complicatedness of your heart and the treasonness of your heart with this kind of stuff and you see the gospel as the good news and like, yes, he's the one that I want, then like, even if you aren't a follower of Jesus, just like, Man, talk to him about the gospel. Receive him. Put your faith in him. Surrender to him. See him as good news. And then just go take communion. Yeah, if you didn't grab it on the way in, the communion cups are in the back, um, just on the right and left. And then the worship team, they're going to be playing three songs, and then you can take communion at any time during those three songs. Let's pray. So God, really thankful that... um, You give us the grace to show us um, how complicated our hearts are. But we just really pray that that in the midst of you giving us that grace, that you'll just show us um, just on a heart level of like how good you are and how you invite us into just like having life, Um, seeking comfort in you, realizing you're in control. You give approval. You won all the approval that we needed through your life. Yeah, we pray that you will incline our hearts to really worship our way into following you like that, God. So, yeah, we need you. Amen.